everyone, this is Paul with the Divided Families podcast. I know it's been a while since we've had our last episode. I think we were waiting to release something timely and relevant and maybe something unique that we can contribute as well, given our own positionality. I think most of our team are people of color. We started myself and uh, Eugene are both Korean American men, um, and we've been reflecting on that. I had a chance to catch up with Eugene in person when he was visiting Ireland. I think for this episode, you know, it's special in so many ways. And one, I think, is because of this delayed uh, anticipation, uh, because this is a guest we've been wanting on to have on the show for uh, more than a year now. His name is Oleksandr Shin, or Olek. I found out we're actually the same age. Ukrainian, Korean, uh, goes back several generations, which I'm very curious to hear about. But currently living in Taiwan and also volunteering for, leading, and has founded this organization, Ukrainian Voices which, as I understand, is helping to amplify and raise up the voices of Ukrainian people in Taiwan. But Oleg, I'm so excited to, to talk to you. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. I'm just curious, you know, there's so much uh, I know you've talked about already in terms of your activism, your identity, how Ukraine fits into this anti-colonial or decolonizing strategy. Um, but first, can you share a bit about your uh, family background, especially as you were growing up? And I know your family has moved a lot uh, across the world. You yourself have, have moved a lot across the world. And we'll come back later to the present. But what was it like growing up for you and your family? Hi, everyone. Hi, Paul. I'm really glad to be finally joining you here uh, to contribute towards this very valuable conversations that you have on your podcast. So, yeah, I'm a Korean-Ukrainian. And that often comes as a surprise to many people that there is a Korean community in Ukraine. Uh, but it's indeed a community with a long history. I, I wasn't born in Ukraine because I was born in another place uh, that was the final destination of Koreans within the Soviet Union who were deported. But then I ended up in Ukraine and I grew up in Ukraine, um, pretty much identify as a Ukrainian or Korean-Ukrainian. Can you talk a bit more about um, you know what it was like growing up in Ukraine then and and a bit about maybe your your parents and grandparents' story as well of mm -hmm. how they ended up in, well, yeah, Ukraine and then maybe even before that in Central Asia from Korea. Yeah, so it's, it's a fascinating story uh, full of, I would say, full of tragedy, but also uplifting of sorts. Uplifting, of course, retrospectively from the point of view of today, because we as Korean Ukrainians now we get to appreciate our past and learn from it. But our parents, our grandparents, they unfortunately were denied that opportunity. So Koreans started to move out of the Korean Peninsula in the second half of 19th century. And that's also around the time when Japan started sort of uh, a politic, policy of aggression against Korea many Koreans ran northwards. So towards those areas where Russian Far East is located right now. At that time, of course, the territory wasn't as Russian as it is right now. There was one military forepost by the Russian Empire. But Koreans just freely settled there. And they entered a certain agreement with the Russian government and they could live there. Um, but then when the Soviet 
rule came uh, in Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution, the perception of Korean people there, I, I believe, changed drastically. And then in 1937, it was during Joseph Stalin's rule that Soviet Union thought that Koreans were a threat. So there were uh, hundreds of thousands of Koreans living there in the Russian Far East. And 172,000 people were subjected to a deportation. So deportation is pretty much the most defining event in, in the history of my family, in the history of Soviet Koreans or Ukrainian Koreans. Mm-hmm. And in 1937, it's, I cannot tell much because most of it was lost. But what we know is that Stalin officially uh, proclaimed that Koreans posed a risk uh, of being the Japanese spies, which is, you know, double offensive because Koreans were in the first place running away from the Japanese. Many were actually Korean independence fighters and uh, organized insurgency from the Russian territory. But then, based on that, 172,000 people got deported into Central Asia, so into the very depths of the Soviet Union, into underdeveloped uh, areas of Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, Mm -hmm. and of course, uh, their houses. The houses of the Korean people were... uh, they were repopulated by Russians or other peoples uh, who were colonized by Russia. And that's how we ended up in Central Asia. There's still a huge diaspora in Central Asia. I was born in Uzbekistan myself. And that's, that's very interesting to see because, you know, it's majority Muslim part of the world. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up in this very interesting uh, community of Koreans who were predominantly Russian speaking because they were Russified. There was an interesting childhood, <laughs> but we did move to Ukraine in 1990. I see. Okay, so yeah, you were walking us through the, uh, the history of um, basically the deportation by Stalin. Uh, in the late 1930s, and uh, you know, actually, another guest on our on our program, Tatiana Kim, uh, she's from Sakhalin. She mm. was talking a bit of that about that history and identity as well. But actually, you know, one thing I was curious about in terms of your family and growing up, I think in another interview you were talking about how for a long time your grandparents did not really talk about this history uh, or their experience of deportation and migration. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit more about that and if that was the case for uh, a lot of things in your family and other Korean, Ukrainian families, uh, because it's definitely the case in my family. I was sharing about my own experience. I found out that my grandparents had uh, connections to North Korea. You know, I, I, my grandfather, mm-hmm. he was separated from family in North Korea. So I'm just wondering about that culture of being open about these kinds of maybe traumatic events for family, like family separation or migration. Um, What was that culture like in your own family? Well, yeah, indeed, we haven't uh, had many conversations about this, mostly because my parents are the post-deportation generation. So my grandparents, my grandfather, he was just eight years old when he was deported with his mother. And then my parents were born already um, in Uzbekistan, in Central Asia, and they had never visited Korea 
before going to Korea this time. One of the few stories is from my grandpa that he told himself, which, you know, he was just eight years old, so you don't really know to what extent. It's, it's a full story, but the way he told it is extremely heartbreaking. So um, they were on a ferry crossing uh, a river and uh, his mother called him and she gave him like a, a, some wrapped fabric and, um, and she asked him to throw it into the river. And she had been pregnant actually at the moment of the deportation. Mm -hmm. And before throwing it into the river, he, he, of course, curious as a kid, he was, he opened it and he saw that there were uh, stillborn uh, twins. Mm -hmm. And well, he, he did his task, of course, he threw them into the river, which as my father later told me that in the Koryo Korean culture, so in the culture of Korean people living in the former Soviet Union, mm -hmm. um, it's also symbolic because if, a child dies at a very young age, so I'm not reaching maturity or stillborn ch children. Uh, you would normally bury them next to a river, next to a body of water. And that's really one of very few stories of deportation that we had because the generation of my grandparents, my, my grandpa mm -hmm. and his cousins or brothers or sisters who had also been deported they haven't passed down many stories so this one story my dad told me so many times on repeat but when I grew up already I started asking him more of course and he couldn't tell me much simply because there was this entire generation that did not disclose this you know now my grandparents they've passed away all of them on both sides and um um, there's no way for me to ask for more stories for what they felt, what it was like. And part of why they didn't do that is because, of course, um, there could actually be many reasons, right? But the stigma of calling yourself a deported person, mm -hmm. you know, you just don't want to carry that. Uh, but first of all, of course, is you do not call it a deportation uh, because um, that's not what they used to call it in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Deportation is something that implies that there was a power that moved you, right? right? And in the Soviet Union, the narrative that they mainstreamed was the resettlement. But the, the word resettlement in Russian sounds very different from English. It's not that someone resettled you, it's that you decided to migrate. So pretty much the synonym of the word migration. Mm. And that removes the whole idea of a forced deportation is what we call it right now at least in ukraine and in south korea um, and many people died thousands of people died of course just like my um, grandpa's siblings the newborn siblings and uh, um, i think even into the generation of my parents they really didn't tell me much until i asked them myself as a as a grown up as a sociologist you know i just started asking questions mm -hmm. and uh, it's painful to realize that there's there's so much that is buried right now like my parents simply do not have those memories because they weren't in that context yeah but what i've learned about it is simply from you know the documents from some other people's stories from um, just public sources 
that's pretty much lost history for me. And I'm guessing you were it wasn't the only it wasn't only your family that experienced those kinds of those kinds of sacrifices and, and incidents. I'm wondering yeah, for sure it's like yeah. thousands of families. Yeah. And and you know, when you talk about families across generations, you know, I, I want to ask a bit about language as well, which I know you're very interested in, you know, your mm-hmm. study. I, I know you did a master's program, I think, in Taiwan on is it indigenous language policy in Taiwan? Right. You know, obviously, you're fluent in English. You, you said uh, Russian was very popular and where you were growing up as well. But you also speak Ukrainian and, and other languages as well. But in terms of relationships with your own family, was, ling- was language a barrier at all? Um, and I'm asking this partially in my own experience. You know, I was just with my own family, uh, my parents and my brother who were visiting. You know, my parents both went to the U.S. for uh, studies. They, they learned English and they're educated, uh, but still, of course, they're much more comfortable in Korean. And so I, I only talk to my parents in Korean, but I only talk to my younger brother in English. Uh, so unless we are with uh, the rest right. of our family. For me, I've never been educated in Korean. So I, I feel more and more as I get older that there are some things that's very difficult for me to express or articulate in Korean. When it comes to communicating with my family about, you know, emotions, about uh, politics, for example. So I'm just curious, in, in your experience, has that been um, a barrier at all? Or is there always a, a common language that everyone feels comfortable with? And I guess especially because, as I understand, you, you're, you yourself are physically separated from your own family uh, being in Taiwan, unless things have changed from the last time uh, I, I heard about you. The problem of language wasn't as, as as pronounced as in your case, because obviously your parents are the first generation that it, um, I've heard many stories about Korean Americans or Asian Americans in general and about the, the language barrier that translates into you know to certain cultural barriers. So it's very interesting, a very interesting topic. In my family, it was quite different because my parents grew up already in the Soviet Union. They grew up in the um the soviet totalitarian regime of 1970s and 80s when they were kids they spoke some korean to their parents but they were never educated i started learning korean as a teenager and my parents they still could not read korean because they had never learned it they wouldn't be even be able to tell you the difference between like chinese writing and korean hangul writing you know My grandparents spoke Korean, but they switched very quickly because it wasn't really, you, you wouldn't be able to survive if you didn't learn Russian. Yeah. And then Koreans were, and I've learned this from the Asian American history, this term, the modal minority. Right. I actually grew up being proud of it, of this mm-hmm. history. The modal minority that after, even after deportation, even after the, the crime of Joseph Stalin and repressions that came after, even not being given the, the the minimum, the right to learn your own language, to have a Korean school or a Korean university in the Soviet, they still worked so hard to advance this Soviet whatever yeah. system, right? The Soviet nation. Ever since I was a kid, most stories of our history were, you know, how my ancestors after the deportation, after the uh, migration, in quotation marks, 
Um, they worked so hard. They helped develop the rice fields in Central Asia. They um, earned a lot of medals for labor, uh, whatever the Soviet system gave them. Mm-hmm. And I grew up being proud of that, knowing also how, how hardworking my parents is. I know where that culture comes from. But at the same time, I realized the sacrifice that came with that, with that label of a modal minority, right? Mm-hmm. I look at Ukrainian Armenians or Ukrainian Georgian diaspora who've been in Ukraine for way more generations than Koreans mm-hmm. and how they still preserve their language, their identity, their connection with their government, and to what extent Koreans are, have lost it. It's just, it's, it shocked me once I started thinking about it as an adult. Yeah. Even despite the fact that North Korea was somehow ideologically close to the Soviet Union, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to what extent we've just become Soviet citizens? Many people just, um, well, of course, religion was banned, right? Many people uh, were Orthodox in the beginning. They stopped being such. They forgot Korean language. Um, my generation, we just grew up without any of those attributes. All we had at home of Koreanness was food. That was, of course, an interesting mix of all the cuisines that were on the way, you know, of our deportation and then migration to Ukraine. Yeah. And um, just some words that we preserved of our dialect of Korean, like um, names for relatives, like, for example, we wouldn't call our grandparents with a Russian or Ukrainian word, grandpa or grandma. Mm. We would use the Koreo words, Amya or Abai, mm. which is somewhat close to North Korean. And that's that's pretty much it. Although in independent Ukraine, of course, I already grew up uh, being a proud Korean kid. Yeah. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why I started learning Korean, because I felt like, well, as proud as I can be as a Korean, there's yeah. one thing that's really missing, and that's language, right? I could speak Ukrainian and Russian fluently at the time. I had started learning English as my first foreign language at school. But Korean, like Ukrainian kids would ask me, can you write my name in Korean? And I felt so ashamed that I couldn't. I remember I was at a summer camp as a kid and I literally made out some characters (laughs) in order to, (laughs) you know, not look like I do not know how to write my my ancestors' language. And from what I've heard, many Korean Ukrainian kids grew up that way and um I often talk to Asian Americans and the stories I hear from them, of course, generally, are very different in that many people in America, as they say, try to suppress their Asianness. But in Ukraine, most Korean kids I know, we actually grew up being proud to be Korean, yeah. but we were lacking the opportunity to, you know, to learn the language, to to have our history preserved, to be able to tell stories. Um, so that's an interesting um, an interesting context, mm. I think, that we would have to sit down and deconstruct again and then see, especially when we talk to Korea, uh, people from Korean diasporas overseas in other countries, in other contexts. Yeah. I don't think it's comparable with anything. I, I guess just a, a couple of follow-up questions for that. You know, what about the relationship between you know, Ukrainian and Russian languages and, mm-hmm. you know, with your family as well? Because 
how comfortable you find it speaking in at home versus in the schools versus in the public and especially how that's affected by you know the current circumstances by uh, Russia's invasion you know I, I understandably I imagine it's um much less popular or it's it's probably very controversial to use Russian at all among the Ukrainian community. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's just my own assumption. So uh, could you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about Russian versus Ukrainian language in your own context? Yeah, of course. So when we moved to Ukraine, we obviously spoke only Russian. My parents had stopped speaking any sort of Korean once I became a teenager. Um, it was entirely Russian. And then, of course, I grew up in Ukraine. I was one year old when we moved to Ukraine. And then my younger brother, he was born in Ukraine. So we already grew up in the environment that was not entirely Russian speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I went to school, it was entirely in Ukrainian. Um, and it's in the south of Ukraine. So it's one of those parts of the country that were most heavily Russified. So that would sort of provide you the understanding of the context. My parents were comfortable not knowing Ukrainian because uh, Russian speakers were pretty much accommodated. Mm. Um, But us kids already naturally integrated into the Ukrainian language. Um, Most of the time in that part of the country, we speak a mix of the two languages, which is the result of the Russification of Ukrainian language and the the dialect of sorts called Surzhik. So I grew up speaking Surzhik on the street standard Ukrainian at school and Russian at home. Now, my parents, they left for Korea in October last year because they were in the occupied areas. Yeah. But uh, up until recently, they, they just spoke Russian uh, throughout the whole process. There's many people um, in my village, for example, who speak Russian, but my dad does speak Ukrainian now and my mom understands it understands fully, but uh, cannot speak it. Ukrainian and Russian are quite similar. They're related actually. So I would say maybe like a Portuguese and Italian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you live for 10 years in Ukraine, you would be able to understand 100% of it. And then um, you might not be able to speak it though. My father speaks fluently because he talks to people a lot. My mom is not as uh, sociable <laughs> so she didn't pick it up as well i see i see and then what about your uh your own name because as i understand alexander is ukrainian but shin is your korean family name but i mean do you all always use the same name for example or do you, do you have a separate korean name what i'm also curious about or, uh, or when you introduce yourself in russian or when you introduce yourself in other languages are there different versions of your name or your family name uh, so the generation starting from my parents, we didn't have Korean names already. So mm-hmm. it was just last name, Shin. And then um, my parents never had a Korean name. They both have Russian names. And then, of course, me and my brother, we grew up um, with Russian names only. Now, um, Alexander is the Ukrainian version of the name Alexander. Mm-hmm. And it's the most popular male name in Ukraine. But my last name, if you can see the way I spell it, S-H-Y-N, it's not entirely Korean either because there's a Y in it, right. not, not an I. And that is also the specificities of Ukrainian orthography because uh, when my family 
arrived in Ukraine, they were registered as Shin. So Y is for another sound. It's not for E, it's for Ö, which makes it Shin instead of Shin. Um. And um, when people see my name, they normally know instantly that it's it's a Ukrainianized <laughs> Korean last name. Yeah. But I know some people, some Koreans living in Ukraine who have the same last name, they spell it differently. Some of them spell it Shin. Some of them spell it Sin, you know, just S-I-N. Ah, I see, I see. And um, there's, there used to be a mayor in the Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia who was Korean, uh, Alexander Sin. So almost Sin. identical name. <laughs> oh, and, I yeah. see. Well, I thought I was the only one who... There were so many people. Almost every school I went to, there was someone else named Paul Lee uh, in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to ask about you, know, you and your family, and then maybe we can move on to your advocacy and work with Ukrainian Voices. We've both had very cosmopolitan uh, international experiences. Taiwan and Europe for you and Ukraine and, and Korea as well. You, know, you mentioned now your, your family... I guess they were in the south of Ukraine uh, during the invasion, but now they're in Korea. But I imagine that this being separated from your family, has that changed your relationship with them? I imagine, you know, just from my own experience, being in different time zones, a cacao talk is often the only way I, I, I talk to them. And it's been a long, long time since I've lived together uh, and had a daily routine uh, with my own parents or my own grandparents. I, I imagine being in the middle of a conflict uh, that makes things even more aggravated. I'm just wondering for you, and you mentioned you have a brother as well, you know, how does being on your own in these different places and all these different migrations of yours and your own families, how has that affected your relationship? Has, has it strengthened it or has it made it more difficult, um, especially with the conflict? I think separation is, is a logical continuation, in my case, a logical continuation of my family's history. Because even after we moved to Ukraine, we used to move to a different province every year or two, uh, trying to settle down. Um, my parents had a very hard time uh, financially in the beginning, so we moved from one place to another. And for the first time when we got our house, like bought an actual house of our own. It was when I was in grade three or four elementary school. So up, un up until that time, you know, it was just constant moving. So when I was in grade eight, I also naturally moved out <laughs> of the house. And I was really curious about Korean language and Korean culture. So my parents sent me, I would say, uh, to another city called Kharkiv, which is in the north of Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, a very cosmopolitan, very international place. And there they had a, a school that taught Korean languages, the first foreign language. Mm -hmm. And it's a public school. It's not a private school because in Ukraine we don't have private schools, really, not that many. And it's a public school where they have Korean language as the first foreign language. You would learn Korean at least six hours a week. Yeah. So I was really happy to do that. I was just 15, I think, when I went there. That was the first time I said goodbye to my parents. 
I would see them only four times a year because it was a 18 hour train ride away from my home. Yeah. And that's when my mom told me when she packed my stuff, she said, I know you leave right now. And next time you come home, it's not going to be the same because you're going to be just a, a, a visiting um, on your vacation. Yeah. You're not going to be, you know, staying here anymore, which uh, t- didn't turn out to be true because I did stay at home for at least nine months after my bachelor's. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's when it started. After high school, I went to Korea. From Korea, I went to Taiwan. From Taiwan, I ended up doing my master's in Europe, volunteering in the Middle East and Central Asia in Africa. Oh, and, I didn't know um, about those others in Central Asia and Africa. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, because I I studied uh, politics of education, education policies, Mm -hmm. which is an extremely interesting topic. And uh, I was so curious about it that I just went on and my parents wouldn't see me for like two or three years at a time. (laughs) And I wouldn't say that it it put an emotional distance between us, uh, rather... I started missing them more, you know, I, I didn't really realize how much I was missing them when I was in Ukraine, even living in a different city. Yeah. And now I think conversations make more sense. Conversations are more warm. Um, both me as a son and my parents as parents, I think we've, we've developed a lot in terms of our relationship. We've started having uh, conversations that have more understanding in it, you know, because when you live with someone on the same property, you just take it for granted. You can, you can say something hurtful, and you can say something offensive. You know, uh, Asian parents can be very controlling sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and with the distance between you, I feel like they start realizing that there's only this much control they can assert, but what they can do instead is to show love, you know, uh, as mellow as that sounds. I think that's what happened in my situation, but it, it started very early because I left at a very young age. I mean, how is that, has that changed with the, um, with the conflict, you know, especially because your, your parents, for a time, they were living in the Russian-occupied area of Ukraine. Did that relationship change during the invasion and uh, now when they're in Korea as well? Um, well, of course, it was very difficult for all of us in the beginning. Like, I don't think I had a proper life in the first months uh, during the full-scale invasion because they were constantly in danger, in, in physical danger. There was a lot of surveillance uh, by Russians. And um, the whole, you know, the whole economy of the region disrupted. My parents, they used to farm. Mm-hmm. So... They lost a lot of money. Of course, a lot of stress comes with that. And um, knowing how hardworking they are, of course, having to dispose of 500 tons of cabbage just because you cannot sell it because you started growing it before the invasion. You know, now now you cannot sell it. You you have to just like uh, leave it in the field to rot. It was like a a roller coaster um, minus any positive emotions for at least several months. And then um, once it felt like they were a little bit um, safe, because it's actually very deep in the Russian occupation. So it's quite far from the front line. 
Unfortunately, Russians managed to occupy my province very quickly on, like Ukrainian defense failed in that direction. And um, the deeper they were in occupation, the safer it was, weirdly, because at least there was no bombing directly. Um, And Ukrainians don't really hit into residential areas, so I knew that they would be safe. Mm -hmm. Um, They perhaps were even safer than if they were on the Ukrainian territory, but somewhere, you know, in that area, because no place was safe from Russian missiles. Work, you know, everything got disrupted, relatives started moving out. And it was a little bit, uh, it was an expected route, I would say, for many people, because when Russia invaded in 2014, they occupied Crimea. And Crimea was one of those places where a lot of Koreans lived. Because Koreans, when they moved from Central Asia, they started farming. Crimea, with the best weather in the country, the fertile soil. So many people were growing watermelons and vegetables and uh, melons there. Then many of those people went to Korea as immigrants. So last year, when the second invasion happened, for many people, it was already an obvious choice because some of their relatives were already in Korea and they already knew what kind of visas they needed, the paperwork, you know, all those things that would normally scare you migrating as a, you know, labor worker, uh, labor immigrant to a country whose language you don't speak. These things were already familiar to people. So uh, it was my first, my brother, some of the relatives that went to Crimea via Russia to Moscow, to the Korean embassy there. Mm -hmm. And then my parents, right now we can talk about whatever we want, share whatever feelings we have. I do feel like they're closer. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad they're safer now, physically at least. And I remember seeing Mm -hmm. a report of yours talking about uh, misinformation uh, like Russian misinformation. I think I was reading uh, something you were saying about your brother reading something about you, you know, uh, being targeted as well when it really didn't happen. A lot of uh, fears can escalate, if, if, especially if you're not physically together. But do, have you been able to see your family since? Um, yeah, actually, since the invasion, at least. Or do you know when you'll be able to see them next? Not yet, but I'm hoping this year either I will visit them or they will visit me. (laughs) That'd be really nice. Uh, Korea is not that far. It's just uh, paperwork-wise, I would need a visa to go, and they would need a visa to come to Taiwan. Because none of us has um, Korean passports, obviously. We're all entirely foreigners to Korea. So I would have to apply for a Korean visa to go there. Yeah, I really hope you can see them soon, uh, one way or another. I was wondering if you can talk a bit about your work in Taiwan, uh, Ukrainian voices especially. And I know what I've seen on social media, you know, it's been a really great resource in terms of learning directly from Ukrainian voices, I think, in in uh, Chinese language about uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. You've continued it for quite some time now and also with other platforms like Stand with Ukraine, Taiwan as well. But, you know, I'm just wondering how uh, family separation fits into this. You know, if you've seen, uh, obviously, you're just uh, one example, and I know you can't speak for 
everyone, but from your advocacy and activism, if you've come across any stories of families who have been separated that you've tried to highlight, whether on a physical level or on a political or ideological level because of the current conflict? Um, well, you've probably felt it too, that after the last year's invasion, Ukrainians overseas, they started becoming very active and very coherent, which is not normal for Ukrainian people usually. You know, Ukrainians fight with each other until they face an existential threat, which is a very interesting part of the mentality. Mm -hmm. And that's so true because the community here, it's not small. It was at least 200 people, Ukrainians, living here in Taiwan before the invasion, but very few had actually any sort of community. But now once the invasion started, you could see people coming together. They started creating one movement after another, donation um, drives, organizing all sorts of cultural events to sort of promote Ukraine, Ukrainian identity, Ukrainian voices. That's how the Taiwan Stands with Ukraine movement started early on. And it was all done within the context of huge solidarity from the Taiwanese people, from uh, other people, non-Taiwanese people living in Taiwan, especially people from Eastern Europe who historically have also been subjected to Russian colonialism and imperialism. Mm -hmm. So like Lithuanians or Poles or Estonians. So this movement is very diverse here. And then Although there is this solidarity, of course, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Even even when people support you, they might still not really understand some things. And one of the things that people didn't really catch in the beginning is that this is not just a temporary conflict, that it's a continuation of Russia's colonial aggression against Ukraine. Not just Ukraine as a nation, but pretty much every ethnic group within Ukraine has been subject to atrocities. Right, of Russian crimes, mm -hmm. genocides, or linguicides, or deportations, or ethnic cleansings of all sorts. Um, and Ukrainians, I, I like to call Ukrainians a nation of survivors, because pretty much everyone you ask, they would have a history of a certain crime, like their grandma was deported to Siberia, or their grandparents were banned from speaking Ukrainian, or their great-grandparents survived the famine genocide of 1930s. And then we start talking to each other and we share stories, you know, how, how it's happened to us. I would tell people about the Korean deportation, they would tell me their stories. Yeah. The, the Polish deportation, uh, the Crimean Tatar deportation. And then I think it's, only when we started realizing that this threat is not in the past, but is reoccurring again. I don't want to say the history is cyclical because that's just very fatalist, but the things are repeating just because that one perpetrator was never punished. And I think this year, the conversations, they just opened up. You, you can even see Ukrainian, Korean, Korean Ukrainians, the history that they had never spoken about, they are starting to dig it. And the, one of the reasons why I started more asking more questions, why my friends started writing about their family history. And maybe this is even the last chance for us to collect, you know, a large body on the Soviet Korean history of deportation, because now we at least have more inputs from people who now feel like they, they have the moral obligation to speak up 
this coherence of course resulted in many people here started being active and vocal that's how we formed ukrainian voices because we thought that delivering the truth to the people about the history of russian crimes against the peoples of ukraine it was the primary goal the way we present ukraine is very post-colonial like for example even the smaller things my colleague she helped co-curate an exhibition at the Taiwanese National Human Rights Museum. And the exhibition is about Ukraine. But what she did, she actively changed all Ukrainian city names in the Mandarin language into their Ukrainian spelling instead of their Russian spelling. Because, you know, most countries in the world, they still use Russian spelling for Ukrainian cities, right. which, is the, which are the remnants of the colonial history. It's... You know, like when India started switching their city names uh, yeah, yeah. away from the colonial ones. So it's part of the work that we do here. We want to amplify Ukraine that is not just about war, but it's also about the history of the war that has in fact started 300 years ago. It wasn't always a war per se, but you can see this continuity of struggle. And now that the threat is so imminent we feel like we need to speak more. And I think one of the reasons, speaking of the family division, one of the reasons why so many Ukrainians are so active is because this is touching upon our lives directly. Like there's no person in Ukraine who hasn't been affected by this war. When Russia first invaded Crimea in 2014 and started the war in the East, you know, there were still so many people in the country, including myself, I would say. We we just lived our normal lives. We didn't really think that this would somehow affect us. Yes, there was some economic disruption, but even living so close to the now occupied Crimea, we still lived our normal lives. Yeah. But this time, it's, it's just about everyone. That's why we call it full-scale invasion, right? And you can see how people they would um they would just not be quiet ever because it's happening literally around their house yeah. and for the museum exhibition we had this very interesting project called hear our voices we invited ukrainians who live in taiwan to to answer very simple questions like who did you call uh, when you heard about the invasion and most people were in taiwan at that moment and it was very interesting to see whom they say they called, right? So someone would say, oh, I called my mom. She was sleeping. She was, at, uh, you know, it was 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. in Ukraine. And another person would say, I called my friends first and foremost, or I called my father. I grabbed my cat and started running. Yeah. And it's, it's very interesting to see how people... Um, started re relating to their family. There's one person who said that she was in Taiwan since she was 16. Oh. And now the only thing that she wants in this world is to be with her family in Ukraine. But that's one thing that she cannot do. And she regrets not, you know, being with them earlier. Yeah, you know, so much of that. I'm, I First off, I would love to, I wish I could have seen that exhibit myself to hear our voices because that sounds so powerful. Um, so if there, if it's, yeah, it's a, a virtual this year, so you managed to come. Oh yeah, I mean I haven't been back in Taiwan <laughs> in so long, so I would love to see. And then you know when you were talking about misunderstanding, 
I think that comes up both in Ireland and in Korea, uh, as I've learned, you know, when people think the conflict started often uh, is very important. You know, some people just think um, in Northern Ireland, the conflict just started in uh, the late 1960s. But actually, when you look further, it, it, you can see that the roots of the conflict start with British colonialism and the plantations of Ireland, or even in Korea, you know, some people say, Oh, the conflict only started on June 25th, 1950. But you can actually see that the roots started, you know, with the, the US and USSR and the division of Korea, and even before that with Japanese colonialism. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's hard not to, um, you know, not to consider those systems of power and colonialism. But, you know, I, I think the biggest thing I wanted to ask you, it's, it's really been on my mind and heart. And I think you could relate to this uh, as I've been listening to and reading uh, what you've what you've said and written on how to sustain a movement like a transnational movement and transnational solidarity, because this is something that we've been trying to do ourselves with the, this podcast, with Divided Families podcast. You know, we've had many, many different episodes, you know, over 50 episodes, and each episode is a different context. Uh, and our audience, uh, you know, we cannot expect them to be a, an expert on that particular issue. So it ends up being pretty general. And then we move on to a different issue. And then I remember listening to what you said, you know, when you were in Korea and then in, in 2014. Did, did you call it the revolution of dignity? Revolution for dignity? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And how that was so transformative compared to seeing South Korean politics, which, you know, might have felt more foreign in a way. And that definitely resonates with me uh, when it comes to U.S. versus South Korean politics. You know, but in terms of the limits of kind of empathy with conflicts or issues that are not your own, how do you find that? How do you navigate that now that you've worked on Ukrainian voices for quite some time now, you know, during the invasion, we don't know how much longer it's going to go on. Is there, do you see a limit as to what non-Ukrainians can empathize with or how long they can sustain their interest and uh, support after the initial the buzz about this issue? And you yourself, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you sustain yourself in this without being, without being burnt out? Just because these are questions that I've, I've been asking myself as I've been working on the Korean-American issue and trying to build solidarity around it. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of non-burning out, I think most Ukrainian the Ukrainians these days they live in a in a traumatic state already. It's it's when you just don't burn out because you're already you've already burned. You're just like you know as a machine, you're just running. Uh, a, a therapist friend of mine, Ukrainian, she told me recently that I'm not sure to what extent it's correct, but perhaps it's her theory. She says that after this war ukrainians will start getting physically sick like a lot you know uh, and uh, she said it's because right now people just live in this constant state of survival like the very fact that so many people don't go into bomb shelters anymore and just say well if it hits me it hits you know uh, explains how people are just in this you know, state where they don't perceive threat the way they should be, because if you constantly live um, in in a state of, you know, fear and panic, then you would just die. You wouldn't survive this any longer. So it's 
getting blocked out and many people who actually act like there's no war anymore. It's a part of their defensive mechanism. And I really don't see myself burning out. And it's been, uh, it's been a year that feels like many years. Um, yeah. So well, I'm really glad to speaking hear. of, speaking of uh, cross movement solidarity, there's a lot of that in Taiwan. So maybe it's just the, the context of Taiwan that makes me feel like this, this is very sustainable because I can see that Ukrainians uh, and Hong Kongers and Tibetans and the Taiwanese um, and Uyghurs here, all these movements, they somehow come to a certain you know, understanding and learning about each other. You would constantly see a Tibetan flag at the Ukrainian movement. You would constantly see Ukrainian flags at Hong Konger events. This is happening a lot in Taiwan, but of course, globally, it's a different picture. It's been very difficult for the Ukrainian left in specific to secure understanding from the Western left, because I feel like there's a lot of uh, this, um, a lot of this apologizing for Russia that is happening in the Western leftist circles, which is very unfortunate, I think, because they do not see Russia as an imperialist power um, and they advocate for values, but in fact, what they advocate is against American imperialism as if it's the only one in the world, right. which is, you know, is, is a very narrow picture of the world to have. Yeah. They just do not see Russia for what it is. And therefore they deny the Ukrainian people their right to voice, right to a platform, right to defense. There was this event that we had at the museum, which was about Ukrainian resistance. So we invited Ukrainian speakers. One of them is a Ukrainian um, uh, activist. Uh, she's, well, Afghani Ukrainian. And another one is an indigenous Crimean Tatar person. They were talking about how their um, journey was um, under the Russian occupation. And they were also talking about their family history. So the Crimean Tatar activist was talking about his ancestors' history of uh, genocide by Russia, of deportation in 1944. Mm -hmm. And after the event, there was this American who came to me and she said, you guys are going to regret this. And this just, it was so shocking to me that she mm -hmm. of all places thought that this would be the correct platform to shame Ukrainian people on wanting defense from NATO, you know. Yeah. I know NATO and America are not, are not, you know, we don't have any pink dreams about them. Yeah. We know that it's extremely flawed. We know the history of imperialism. But it's about survival for us at this point. And then she said, do you know that Black Americans suffer and then trans people suffer in America? Of course, I know. But the very fact that you you decided to raise this topic here where we're talking about Ukrainian indigenous voices is yeah. already a part of this very imperialist view of the world. You think this is your platform. And then this, I feel like, represents a very, very problematic part of the American or Western left is that they do not see any other evil in this world but the American or Western imperialism. 
which leaves so many oppressed people outside of the the discussion, right? Outside of those values that they think that they that they are advocating for. And as Americans, they of course have more platforms. You know, when the Black Lives Matter movement started across the world, it started in America, and then it it was just everywhere. Why? Because America has a much powerful platform already. Yeah. And it's a very important issue to talk about, of course, but they they should be aware that there's so many issues like that, that even if a hashtag movement starts, it would just disappear, right? Because these people don't have as much voice power as the American people or the Westerners. Then why would you bring these voices into this platform if you know that we're trying to, you know, at least advocate for this minimum for ourselves. Yeah. And this is a problem of cross-movement solidarity that I feel like it's going to be very difficult to solve. I know there's some groups that are, it's, it's just useless to talk to them, right? Because they, they're directly funded by Russian government or the Chinese government. But there are genuinely people who believe in the West, who believe that they advocate for these values, still remain oblivious to the sufferings of other oppressed people in Ukraine or in in Russia. You know, there's still 20-something ethnic republics within Russia that are just losing it all. They're losing their sovereignty long gone. They're losing any hope of independence and they don't have any human rights. Like, no, you don't have more human rights in Russia. Um, and they're losing their language. And that pains me, especially because that's what my family has been through. And we've lost it. I've learned it from zero. And I know what it feels like when you're ashamed that you do not know, you know, a sentence in your own language. And that's what many people in Ukraine went through before. And then it somehow got fixed after the independence. And that's what people are still going through within Russia. And these people also need solidarity. Unfortunately, they don't always have it from the West. You know, I, I was going to ask about closure and reconciliation, but now I'm, you know, after hearing you say that, it's, it seems kind of foolish for me to even ask that when so many people are in this survival mode and thinking of day to day. So I guess instead, I, I, maybe we can close if you could share by, you know, telling a few ideas or ways in which listeners could either learn more about this issue, you know, what's going on in Ukraine and, and how to support uh, the people of Ukraine as well, you know, especially families uh, who have been separated um, and, and people who have been deported, people who have been had to flee and become refugees. Because at the very least, you know, the Divided Families podcast team is made up of mostly people from the U.S. I'm guessing our listeners are also mostly from the U.S., even if not in the U.S. At least this community can try to uh, avoid falling into that trap of what you said, try to be in solidarity with other oppressed groups. Well, as they say, we all pick our fights, right? So if you have limited resources and limited attention, of course, you should focus on what's imminently next to you, the, the threat to people you know or you love. But of course, if you have some extra time and extra resources, you could learn about this, the horrible thing that is Russian imperialism and Russian colonialism and, and the the tragedies that it's brought to so many people, so many nations, 
Um, I remember when I was volunteering in Lebanon, I was working in a, in a Syrian refugee shelter. And um, um, I taught there for several months. And I remember how, how shocked I was throughout this whole time that, that this actually existed, you know, the whole shelter of 1,500 people who just moved from Syria, just moved at once when the war started near our uh, near their home in Aleppo they just moved into Lebanon into this abandoned building and i was there and i felt so privileged that i i didn't have any of those problems that i studied overseas that i had proper schooling while these kids i was teaching they they weren't in, even allowed in a public school in Lebanon for the longest time. They didn't have books. They entirely relied on aid, on volunteers like us. And it was so shocking for me that people just lost their homes at once. But once Russia invaded Ukraine for the second time, when it felt like it was so close, uh, so much closer than before, I realized that no one is really safe from that as long as we entirely do not deconstruct this whole problem. And a part of that deconstruction, of course, is learning about the crimes that Russia has done, for us Ukrainians at least, including in Syria, where Russia was very aggressive uh, towards civilians. And uh, just learning about that and opening your heart to it and understanding that Ukraine is not just white people as many perceive it. Ukraine is an extremely diverse country with many peoples and religions and ethnicities. And uh, there's Ukrainian LGBT soldiers who are fighting in the front lines, who are fighting at the front lines while uh, advocating for better human rights inside their country. Like right now, uh, they're advocating for same-sex marriage and our government is uh, moving in that direction because they realize that now more than ever they need this law so that people can at least, you know, be with their loved ones if they're injured at war. Yeah. Um, and there's so many voices that are within this nation of 45 million people. And then there's so many more if you start talking about Russian colonialism because it's affected every country at its border and even beyond its borders. I mean, Russia has been to Alaska and California. Right. Uh, you don't really need to go that far. And I'm pretty sure that indigenous people there didn't like it. Um, so I just want, would like to ask people to dig deeper and really learn about these things because that's where the solidarity comes from, this global solidarity, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great place. Well, your, uh, your platforms on social media, especially Ukrainian voices, uh, are a great place to start. Um, I think I've seen it in both English and Chinese. Uh, so Yeah, it's bilingual. We'll definitely share that. And actually, you know, sorry, just one, one last question that came up before I close is that recently I met someone, you know, the question is, if you've encountered any people from Russia, you know, any Russians in mm -hmm. your advocacy or in your work, uh, just because I've um, recently, I met someone uh, who identifies as a Russian dissident 
you know, like she's she's fleeing the Russian government herself. And I don't know. Uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of this um, myself in terms of I know a lot of Western media outlets are very eager to cover these people who are Russian dissidents. And that may take mm -hmm. away from the actual indigenous Ukrainian voices um, or I don't know, Belarusian voices or, you know, you know, other voices that are not Russian. But I'm just wondering what your own experience has been, if you're open to working with or if you have worked with people who are Russians, who are in solidarity, and if you see a vision uh, for working with Russians uh, in your work in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, within the Ukrainian movement in Taiwan, we have several people who are Russians, um, which is not as many as you would expect, given that there's thousands of Russians living in Taiwan. But at least it's good to know that there are good people uh, among them, and some of them are very actively supporting Ukraine, uh, which is very encouraging, of course. Uh, speaking of a larger picture of cross-movement solidarity with the Russians, that does not always align because the movement that we have globally of Russians is mostly anti-Putin and anti-war. But what they are not anti is the colonial history of their country, you know. Mm -hmm. So they, they're, what they stand for only covers this tiny portion of their history, but they would not talk to indigenous, their fellow Russians who are indigenous about any sort of cultural autonomy for their countries, you know. And for me, that is a, a clear indication that no, these people should not be amplified. They should not be given a platform as long as at least indigenous people of Russia are not given that platform. Yeah. Now, um, most of my Russian friends are not ethnically Russian or not from big cities. They're uh, usually Asian Russians or Buryatians, for example, um, who tell me stories that align so much with Ukraine. And you know, Buryatians are very, uh, very represented, sadly, among the Russian invading forces. I see. Um, and one of the reasons for that is because Russia recruits indigenous people first. You know, the people who, who I mean, why not commit two genocides at a time if you can? Yeah. And then, um, of course, with these people, we have a lot of solidarity because they tell me of the stories of their families, they tell me how Russia virtually made it impossible to learn Buryatian language in their native Buryatia and how my friends ended up learning Mongolian in Mongolia just because it's the closest language to their native language. So situations like this provides platforms for solidarity. But if it's just, you know, rich kids from Moscow who say they're against war and flee to the West to seek shelter, well, maybe we'll talk to them in 50 years, you know, once all the other problems are fixed. But unless they see a bigger picture that is the, the imperial history of their nation and the problems that come within, including in their mindsets today, um, I really don't see how there would be any productive dialogue, yeah. not even speaking of solidarity. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great note to uh, to close on, Oleg, but I just want to thank you so much. Uh, you've given me so much things to reflect on myself, you know, uh, about just about how I view conflict in general and about solidarity, about my own identity. You know, I, 
we could have a whole other conversation maybe in, in Korea or Taiwan or or somewhere else in the world someday about you know our, our identities and, and experiences in Korea and Taiwan. Um, but for now, I just want to thank you so much you know, for, for taking this time and sharing your wisdom and experience and stories that I, I didn't know about as well. Really well, appreciate it. I'm that. really glad we had this opportunity. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me for the second time. for tuning in to another episode of the divided families podcast if you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project please follow us on social media at divided families podcast thanks as always to flannel albert for the wonderful music and see you next time